Chapter Twenty of the Great White Queen by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty, The Great White Queen. Gaining the summit and entering the ponderous gate closely behind Old Babila, I was amazed at the bewildering aspect of the gigantic city. As Omar placed his foot upon the top step. Great drums, ornamented by golden bats with outspread wings, were thumped by a perspiring line of drummers, horns were blown with ear-piercing vehemence, and the huge guns mounted on the walls thundered forth a deafening salute. Then, as we walked forward along the way kept clear for us through the enormous crowd of curious citizens, Babila at last met the tall, patriarchal-looking man in command of the city gate. Lo! he cried with our prince omar there returneth a retinue of strangers this one indicating myself is from the land of the white men that lieth beyond the great black water the others are from the borders of prempeh's kingdom art thou certain there are no spies among them asked the man glancing at me keenly in suspicion i omar prince of mo vouch for each man's honesty exclaimed my friend interrupting at these words the chief guardian of the gate bowed until his long white beard swept the ground, and we passed on, followed by Kona and our black companions, in whom the denizens of the mysterious place seemed highly interested, never before having seen negro savages. Now and then as we passed along voices raised in dissension that strangers should be admitted to the inaccessible kingdom reached our ears, but these were drowned by the wild plaudits of the crowd on every hand omar was greeted with an enthusiasm befitting the heir to the emerald throne and he in response bowed his head from side to side as with royal gait he strode down the broad handsome thoroughfare the buildings on either hand were magnificent in their proportions built of enormous blocks of grey stone finely sculptured with square ornamented windows apparently the manufacture of glass was unknown for all the windows were uniformly latticed here and there through the open doors we caught sight of cool courtyards, with trees and flashing fountains beyond, while from the flat roofs that here seemed to be the principal promenade of the ladies, as in eastern lands, white hands and bejeweled arms waved us dainty welcome. Across a great market square, where slaves were being bought and sold, and business was proceeding uninterruptedly, we passed, and as we glanced at the unfortunate ones huddled up in the scanty shadow, we remember the day when we too had been sold by our bitter and well-hated enemy, Samory. I smiled as I reflected what terrible revenge this great army of the Naya could wreak upon the Arab chief, and found myself anticipating the day when the soldiery of Mo should gather before the old villain's stronghold. Kona, who had come up beside me, walked on in silent amazement. He knew nothing of civilization, and the sights he now witnessed held him dumb. The African mind is slow to understand the benefits of civilization and modern progress, unless it be the substitution of guns for bows and bullets for arrows. At last we turned a corner suddenly, and saw before us, rising against the intensely blue sky and flashing in the brilliant sunlight, the three great gilded domes of the royal palace. "'Gold!' cried Kona in an odd tone. "'See!' and he turned to several of his sable brethren. "'See!' they build their great huts of solid gold. What treasure they must have! As we advanced in imposing procession, 
the great gate of this royal residence, grim and frowning as a fortress, over which a large flag was floating, bearing the sign of the vampire bat, opened wide, and unchallenged by the crowds of gaily dressed soldiers drawn up in line and saluting, we went forward amid vociferous cheering. Ours was indeed a progress full of triumph and enthusiasm. The heir to the throne, long since mourned for as lost, had returned, and the loyal people were filled with great rejoicing. Through one spacious courtyard after another we passed, always between long lines of stalwart men-at-arms, bearing good English rifles and well-made accoutrements, until, ascending a short flight of wide steps of polished black stone, we found ourselves in a great hall beneath one of the gilded domes that had so impressed our headman. Before us was a huge curtain of purple velvet that screened from view the further end of the hall, but when all had assembled and stood grouped together, this drapery was suddenly lifted, disclosing to our gaze a sight that filled us with greatest wonder and amazement. The central object was the historic emerald throne, a wonderful golden seat so thickly encrusted with beautiful green gems as to appear entirely constructed of them. Some of the stones were of enormous size, beautifully cut, of amazing brilliance and fabulous value. Above was suspended a golden representation of a crocodile, the god Zamara. Lolling lazily among the pink silk cushions was a woman, tall, thin-faced and ascetic, with a complexion white as my own, high cheekbones, small, black, brilliant eyes, and hair plentifully tinged with gray. Her personality was altogether a striking one, for her brow was low, her face hawk-like, and her long bony hands resting on the arms of the seat of royalty seemed like the talons of a bird to which her face bore resemblance. It was the Naya, the dreaded great white queen. Her robes of rich brocaded silk were of a brilliant golden yellow, heavily embroidered with gold thread, and thickly studded with various jewels. In the bright flood of sunlight that struck full upon her from the painted dome above, the diamonds and rubies enriching her handsome corsage gleamed and flashed white, green, and blood-red. Indeed, so covered was her breast by the fiery gems that as it heaved and fell their flashing dazzled us. Yet in her eyes was a cruel, crafty gleam that from the first moment I saw her roused instinctively within me fear and suspicion. No smile of welcome crossed her cold, implacable features as her gaze met that of her son, Omar. No enthusiastic or maternal greeting passed her lips. Her maids of honor and courtiers grouped about her murmured approbation and welcome as the heavy curtains fell aside. But frowning slightly, she raised her bejeweled claw-like hand impatiently, with a gesture commanding silence, darting hasty glances of displeasure upon those who had, by applauding, lowered her regal dignity. On either side black female slaves in garments of crimson silk, and wearing golden girdles, massive earrings, and neck-chains, slowly fanned the ruler of Mo with large circular fans of ostrich feathers, and from a pedestal near her a tiny fountain of some fragrant perfume shot up and fell with faint plashing into the basin of marvelously cut crystal. The splendor was barbaric, yet refined illustrative everywhere of the taste of these denizens of the unknown kingdom. The walls of the great hall were strangely sculptured with colossal monstrosities, mostly hideous designs, apparently intended to depict the awful wrath of the deity Zamara.
while here and there were curious frescoes of almost photographic finish, the execution of which had been accomplished by some art quite unknown to European civilization. The paving whereon we stood was of jasper, highly polished, with here and there strange outlines inlaid with gold. These outlines, a little crude and unfinished, were mostly illustrative of the power of the Nayas, depicting scenes of battle, justice, and execution. "'Let our son, Omar, stand forth and approach our emerald throne,' exclaimed the Naya at last, in a thin, rasping voice, moving slightly as she bent forward, fixing her shining eyes upon us. They glittered with evil. At the royal command, all bowed low in submission, it being etiquette to do this whenever the Naya expressed command or wish, and Omar, leaving my side, strode forward with becoming hauteur, and, crossing the floor as highly polished as glass, advanced to his royal mother, and, bending upon his knee, pressed her thin, bony hand to his lips. But even then no expression of pleasure crossed her stony features. I had expected to witness an affectionate greeting between mother and son, and was extremely surprised at the coldness of my friend's reception, having regard to his long absence and the many perils we had together faced on our entry into Mo. News was flashed unto me last night that thou hadst crossed the thousand steps, the queen said, slowly withdrawing her bony hand. Why hast thou returned from the land of the white men, and why, pray, hast thou brought hither strangers with thee? These strangers are heroes, each one of them, Omar answered, rising and standing before the throne. Every man has already fought for thee, and for Mo. For me? How? Then, briefly, he related how we had met the remnant of Samory's invading force and defeated them, so that not a single fugitive remained. These savages fought merely for their own lives, not for me, she said, with a supercilious sneer, regarding the half-clad natives with disdain. We in Mo desire not the introduction of such creatures as these. Are not my friends welcome? Omar asked, pale with anger. A Sanam hath never yet turned from his palace those who have proved themselves his friends. Neither hath a Sanam sought the aid of savages, answered the great white queen, with a glance of withering scorn. Adversity sometimes causeth us to seek strange alliances, my friend argued. These men of the Dagomba, Kona, their head man, and Skarsmere, my friend from the land of the white men, have given me aid, and if thou accordest them no welcome, then I, Omar, in the name of my ancestors, the Nabas and the Nayas, will give them greeting and provide them with befitting entertainment while they are within our walls. His words caused instant consternation. The will of the Naya was not to be thwarted. Her every wish was law. A single word from her meant life or death. This openly expressed opposition was, to the court, a most terrible offense, punishable by death to all others, save the heir. The Naya, her thin lips tightly set, and cruelty lurking in the corners of her mouth, rose slowly with an air of terrible anger. "'Does our son Omar thus defy us?' she asked with grim harshness. "'I defy thee not, O Queen Mother,' answered my friend, clasping his hand resolutely behind his back, and standing with his legs slightly apart. "'I bring unto thee those who have fought for me, and have been my companions through many perils, expecting welcome.' Were it not for them I, the last of our regal line, would be no longer living, and at thy death our kingdom would have been without a ruler. 
son the claim of these thy friends to my protection is admitted nevertheless the stranger whoever he may be is by the law of our kingdom that hath been rigorously observed for a thousand years debarred from traversing the thousand steps as the queen spoke i noticed two gorgeously attired men behind her probably her chief advisers exchange whispers with smiles of evident satisfaction then i am to understand that the naya of mo absolutely refuseth to sanction these my friends to dwell within our walls omar said we forbid these strangers to remain answered the queen crimsoning with anger that her son should have thus argued with her they are granted until noon to-morrow to quit our city those found within our land after three suns have set will be held as slaves i the naya have spoken as thou willest it so it will be answered her son bowing very stiffly then turning to us he said friends the people give you cordial welcome even though the naya may refuse to grant you peace you shall remain thou insulted us publicly cried the great white queen still standing erect her black eyes flashing beneath the wisp of scanty gray hair and her talon-like hand uplifted to utter such words hast thou returned from the land beyond the black seas true thou art my son and some day will sit upon this stool but for thus opposing my will thou shalt be banished from mo until such time as i am carried to the tombs of my fathers then when thou returnest hither thy reign shall be one of tumults an evil doing the people who now shout themselves hoarse because their idol omar hath returned to them shall in that day curse thee and heap upon thee every indignity may the great darkness encompass thee may thine enemies break and crush thee and may zomara the one of power smite and devour thee and as she uttered these words she held up her long skinny arms to the hideous golden crocodile suspended over her muttering some mystic sentences the while her slaves and courtiers held their breath the great white queen was cursing her only son the dagambas understood this action and stood aghast while across the faces of the court dignitaries a few moments later there flitted faint sickly smiles the scene was impressive more so perhaps than any i had before witnessed in her sudden ebullition of anger the naya was indeed terrible from her thin blue lips curses most fearful rolled until even her courtiers shuddered as she stood her bony arms uplifted to the image of what was to her the greatest and most dreaded power on earth she screamed herself hoarse uttering imprecations until about her mouth there hung a blood-flecked foam and her long fingernails were driven deep into the flesh of her withered palms all quaked visibly at her wrath for none knew who might next offend her and pay the penalty for doing so with their lives none knew who might next fall victim to her insane passion for causing suffering to others omar alone stood calmly watching her all others remained terrified fearing to utter a single word suddenly in her mad passion she shrieked gankoma gankoma come hither there is still work for thee in an instant the chief executioner a man of giant stature gaudily attired and bearing a huge curved sword that gleamed ominously in the sunlight stood before her and bowing answered your majesty is obeyed there is one who hath betrayed his trust cried the angry ruler to babila guardian of the gate we owe this intrusion of strangers in our land 
and these insults from the mouth of one who is unworthy to be called son. Bring forth Babila. The executioner, sword in hand, advanced to where the trusty old custodian stood. At mention of his name, a despairing cry had escaped him. He knew, alas, his fate was sealed. Pale, trembling in the iron grip of the executioner, he was hurried forward before the dazzling emerald throne. See, he flinches the perfidious old traitor, the Naya cried. His duty was to prevent any stranger from entering Mo, yet he actually assisted yonder horde of savages to gain access to our innermost courts. He? Mercy, your majesty, mercy, implored the unhappy man, falling prone at her feet. I have guarded the gate with my life always. I believe that thy son's friends were thine also. Silence! shrieked the Naya. Let not his voice again fall upon our ears. Let him die now before our eyes, and let his carcass be given as awful to the dogs. Let one hundred of his guards die also. Others who would thwart us will thus be warned. Mercy! screamed the wretched old fellow hoarsely, clasping his hands in fervent supplication. Gancoma, I have spoken, cried the great white queen, majestically waving her hand. Babila, inactive by age, struggled to regain his feet, but ere he could do so, or before Omar could interfere, the executioner had lifted his sword with both hands. The sound of a dull blow was heard, and next second the head of the queen's faithful servant rolled across the polished floor, while from the decapitated trunk the blood gushed forth and ran in an ugly serpentine stream over the jasper slabs. A sudden thrill of horror ran through the crowd at this summary execution of one who had hitherto been implicitly trusted, but only for an instant was the ghastly body allowed to remain before the eyes of the queen and court, for half a dozen slaves had been standing in readiness with bowls of water, and some of these rushing forward carried away the head and body and flung it to the dogs, while others swiftly removed all traces of the gruesome spectacle. Little wonder, therefore, that the great Naya should be held in awe by all her subjects, for in her anger she seemed capable of the most fiendish cruelty. As in Kumasi, so also in Mo, death seemed to come quickly, and for any paltry offense. Gankoma, executioner of the great white queen, was, I afterwards learnt, continually busy obeying the royal commands, and the rapidly increasing number of victims whose heads fell beneath his terrible knife was causing most serious discontent. End of chapter 20. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.